And I know they're going to have a great time downstairs. And our children's ministry does a really good job, Jennifer and her team. And so let's just give her a hand of a round of applause this morning. Yesterday evening, uh, many of us parents in the church took advantage of the Christmas kids party, I think is what it was called. And so our kids had a ton of fun, came home with all kinds of gingerbread uh, tractors or trains, I guess. Not really tractors. You don't really have a Christmas tractor. You have a Christmas train. Uh, But uh, gingerbread houses and all kinds of sugar and stuff like that. And so uh, we love Jennifer and her team. They do a great job. And it gave us as parents a couple hours to just kind of hang out and uh, catch up on some stuff. I know some families were wrapping gifts. Some were probably going shopping. Others were going out to eat. And maybe others just went home and enjoyed the quietness for an hour or two. I'm not sure what you did, but we're grateful for Jennifer and all that her team does uh, for our kiddos. You know, speaking of kids, um, one of the things we probably as parents dislike the most is discipline. I mean, think about when you just, that moment comes when you realize that uh, it's time to discipline. Your child has done something, I don't know, uh, lied, stole, disobeyed, hit their sister in the face, you know, normal stuff that happens around our house. And, and, and so as a parent, you, you see that, you experience that, you know that you need to act on it so it doesn't continue. And so you get this kind of lead-weighted feeling within your gut because you know that you have to do something even though there's everything else in the world that you'd rather do at that moment. Uh, you're going to talk through the situation with your child who's, who's done this act. You're going to go through all of the things, whether or not your instructions were clear, making sure that, that this child deserves punishment. But when it comes down to it, you know that discipline has to be dispensed, has to be given out. And why do we discipline our kids? We do it because we love them. You know, as kids, we always thought, I don't know about you, but uh, my sister and I, we probably contemplated the idea that our parents discipline us because they don't like us, right? It seemed harsh. It it seemed difficult. It it seemed like uh, not even godly and you know just coming at with you with a belt and my dad would sometimes he would walk down the hall when it was time and he would take his leather belt off that had his last name on the my last name too on the back of it and he would snap it your parents ever do that your dad ever do that it's like it was antagonizing us we knew what was coming and yet as a parent now I look at discipline and I know that my parents were not disciplining us my sister and I because they hated us or because they were unloving it was much the different much the opposite they disciplined us because they loved us So as a parent, love requires discipline. If I love my children, I'm going to discipline them and teach them the right things to do. And the Bible makes this clear. Listen to some of the verses that God gives us in the book of Proverbs. Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves as a father the son in whom he delights. Chapter 13 verse 24 says, whoever spares the rod hates his son, but he who loves him is diligent to discipline him. And then in chapter 19 verse 18, the Bible says, discipline your son for there is hope. Do not set your heart on putting him to death. What we see here in just a couple verses is that according to God's word, if we fail to discipline our children, it's as if we hate them. If we choose not to discipline them, it's like we desire to pull hope away from their lives, to forsake hope from them. It's being a willing party to their death. So the word of God tells us over and over again that love disciplines. Proverbs 6.23, for the commandment is a lamp and the teaching a light and the reproofs of discipline are the way of life. 
regardless of how clear the Bible makes this argument for discipline, we would rather do almost anything and everything than discipline. Amen? I mean, we would rather uh, look the other way. We would, we would rather just kind of act like it never happened. We would avoid it like the plague. And that's why we do this in our homes. That's why we do this in our, uh, our relationships. This is why we even avoid discipline in the church. Why do we avoid it? Think about that question. Could it be that we really don't understand discipline? And could it be that we really don't understand the benefits that God desires to bring in our lives through it. I want us to pray, and this morning we're going to talk about the disciplined people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. But I'm grateful today that God loves us enough to discipline himself, and he does that through his own people. Father, we thank you this morning that you are a God who loves us. God, you're a God who cares for us, who provides for us, who protects, who meets our needs, and Lord, even brings correction in our lives when we trespass and go in a direction that is against you and even against our own benefits and longevity. God, you love us enough to do that. We thank you that you're that kind of God. You're the kind of God who came out of heaven to deal with our sin, and even as believers, you continue to bring correction in our lives so that we can live holy and blamelessly and righteously before you and before a watching world. Father, we pray that you would bless us, speak to us, open our hearts and our minds to what your word has to say about this subject. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I was joking with our our tech team earlier this morning we were up upstairs in the balcony I'm like you know it feels weird that here is the Sunday before Christmas and I've yet to preach on Christmas in fact I'm not going to preach on Christmas until Christmas Eve and so it's just odd usually preach, preachers don't do this I typically don't do this but I really didn't want to take a, a break in this series and a, because I wanted to finish it up right after the first year and so we're going to track right along in this series on the church we've been working working through this series and what so far we've learned that we as a people of God we are a theological people right we are the people of God because we're born in Christ we are made in the image of the Lord and then redeemed by him so we're a people and we're a theological people at that then we've talked about how we're a gospel people it's not that we're religious it's not that we 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 try hard we try to please the Lord no it's the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes us which then makes us a converted people we're not just religious we're converted we're in a relationship with the Lord. And then we took a step further and we talked about how we are also an evangelistic people. That because of the gospel, because it's changed our lives, we want to, and there's a mandate upon us as believers to now go and tell others, right? The Great Commission, go and make disciples. It's not a come and see. It's not, hey, join my religion. No, it's go, let's go and tell others where I live, where I work, where I play, all the relationships that God's given me. Plus, I'm going to get on airplanes from time to time and go to far away from people or Place people that are far from God in far away places. I'm an evangelistic believer. We're an evangelistic people. And then we talked about last week how we are also a committed people. As a believer in Jesus Christ, we've been brought into the church. We're committed to Christ and committed to one another. And so church membership is a big deal. Church membership is priority in our lives because it's where, there where we're able to grow and develop and be nurtured in the faith, which brings us to what we're looking at this morning. We as a disciplined people. See, the way that we can grow in our faith is largely due to discipline, church discipline. 
Now, as we think about this, I need us to understand this morning that it's imperative that we be a disciplined people because the world is watching. Think about what I just said there. It's incumbent upon us, imperative that we be a disciplined people because the world is watching. Well, who's the world? It's not so much that people overseas are watching us, though that would be true in some level, but they're not watching our day-to-day lives. But the people in our world is the people who are in our community. They're the people that live in your neighborhood. They're the people you work with, go to school with. The people that God's giving you, giving you those relationships, those are the people in the world who are watching and what they see needs to be a stark difference from what they see around them. The people of God need to be different. See, the world does not need a Christianized shadow of itself. I saw that statement this week and I thought it's exactly what we're looking at this morning. As the people of God who are a disciplined people, the whole goal in discipline is that we would grow in our faith so that when others who are not in Christ would look at us and see somebody who is starkly different from them. Not a Christianized religious shadow of what the world already is. They don't need that. The world doesn't need more of the world. The world needs the gospel, and the gospel is lived and preached and shared through the people of God. See, it needs something full of light and full of flavor. We had an opportunity because of uh, what our children's ministry was doing last yesterday evening to go out to dinner with some of our uh, folks in our small group and just had a great time. Went to this restaurant we kn- I'd never been to before, and I had a 20-ounce ribeye. Can I get an amen for that? 20 ounce ribeye, had a, had a tuna roll before that, a little sushi. I mean, it was, it was fabulous. Why was it fabulous? Because it was full of flavor. I, oh, the steak of choice for me is a ribeye. I know some people look at it and it's got all that fat on it. I look at it and say, that's exactly where the flavor comes from, right? I mean, just scrumptious flavor. Where to be flavor in this world. Listen to what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 5. Verse 13, you are the salt of the earth, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It's no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. Then he goes on to talk about how we're the light of the world. Verse 14, a city set on a hill cannot be hidden, nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Jesus says salt is useful, but if it loses its flavor, it's worthless. See, when we look at salt, salt is useful, salt is good because it does have flavor, because it is distinct. See, when you go and you eat at someone's house and they're of that persuasion where you shouldn't put salt on things and and you take a bite of that food and you think, this is the blandest thing I've ever put in my mouth. What do you want? You want to reach for that sodium chloride sitting there in that little cylinder so you can bring flavor to your meal. That's what salt does. It brings distinctness and it brings flavor. Light is also attractive to those who are standing in the dark because it's not the dark. Think about that. We desire light because we don't desire darkness. So as an evangelistic people and as a committed people, we are also a disciplined people. The corporate endorsement of our salvation, the corporate endorsement of our faith through membership places us in a position to grow as a disciple through discipline. 
This is a good and healthy thing because it helps us ensure our good gospel witness before the Lord and before others. See, we live for an audience of one. Ultimately, our lives, we live before the Lord. We want to bring glory to his name. We want to honor his name through our obedience. In fact, the way we obey God really proves whether or not we love God. And so we want to live in such a way that we are a disciple living for Christ so that he's honored. But also we know that as a gospel witness, others are watching as well. God is concerned about both of those areas, obedience to him, but that also is bleeding over to how our witness affects others and their understanding of him and his gospel. So this morning, as we talk about discipline, we're talking about church discipline. I want you to take your Bible, turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. We're going to get there in just a moment. But I think we can all agree that discipline is beneficial. Can we say that this morning? That, that discipline, though we don't like it, though we may not enjoy it, it's beneficial, right? It is. Discipline is good. And we've all been disciplined. Think about how, who's disciplined us through the years. Our teachers growing up in school. Some of you sitting here this, this morning are still in school. And so you still experience the discipline of teachers. And so that's a positive and a negative type of discipline. We know and we can think back to the coaches that we've had in the sports teams or the band or whatever we've done. The coaches that have helped us and disciplined us. Our employers discipline us. I mean, think about our parents and how they discipline Discipline. Discipline is good. And yet at the same time, we do not enjoy receiving it, which means we doubly do not enjoy administering it. No one likes to administer discipline to another. And here's some reasons why we may not like to, to administer or experience discipline in the church church members, for instance, are not accustomed to being held accountable for their sin. You know, uh, Anytime you bring up discipline in the church, you talk about it. I'm, some of you are probably thinking this this morning. Why are we having this conversation? Why would somebody speak in a life? Who gives that person the right to do this? We ask these questions because we just don't understand biblical discipline and what it should look like in the church. And so we think it shouldn't be there because we're not accustomed to being held accountable. Another reason would be that pastors are sinful too. Did you know that, that pastors are sinful just like you heathens are? Right? I'm not a heathen, but you guys are heathens. I, I'm, no, I got flesh. I have clay feet just like you do. Right? So, so we deal with temptations. We deal with sin. We've all got our set of issues that we're always working through and the, and the sanctification process that we're in. And so a lot of times as a church, the leadership is a little hesitant to go in that direction because that we know that we also deal with things. And because when we say we're going to have discipline, we're going to speak into people's lives, we're going to hold one another accountable. That means I also and the other pastors in our church have to be held accountable as well. But that's good and that's healthy. Another reason we uh, may not want to experience this is because you live in some cases with doubt whether, uh, about whether the discipline is the best action. So we may wonder, should we be doing this? Is this the right time to, to talk to this person? Is this the right time to correct? And then others wonder if you've done all that you could do reasonably to reclaim the offender first. So, you know, we're going to get to... Uh, 
what we, most people think of church discipline is really excommunication. We're going to get to that ultimate thing in just a moment. But when we think about that, we know that's where it could lead. If people refuse to repent, then at some point, the church has to say, we can't give evidence to your walk with Christ. We can't give evidence to your salvation. And so we're going to part ways. And so the idea that that's on the table makes us hesitant because we wonder if we will go too quickly to that point. And so rather than move in that direction, we would choose to do nothing, which I believe is dangerous and damaging to the church and to the person. Another reason is the person can completely misunderstand the intent of the discipline and get angry inside a rebellion or become resentful and drop out of contact. Now that never happens in a church, right? Where, where people misunderstand what somebody says. Somebody would take it the wrong way. Someone would hear it the, the, the way... Somebody would hear it, but not in the same mode or the same vein that the person is sharing, but taking it a completely different way, get angry, get upset, leave inside a rebellion. None of us have ever experienced that in life, especially in the church, right? You haven't been in a Baptist church very long if you have not experienced that. And then lastly, who wants confrontation? I don't want confrontation. I don't enjoy it, and I'm sure you don't enjoy it as well. But despite the difficulty, despite the hesitancy that comes with discipline, it is part of the discipleship process. It is part of iron sharpening iron. It's part of us growing in our faith. It's how God corrects our sin and points uh, us to a better path. You see, to be discipled is to be disciplined. It's to have someone speaking in your life. It's to have correction bringing brought to you. And so let me give you two things real quickly about discipline. What is church discipline? Two aspects of it. Number one, it's formative. Discipline is formative. And this is the positive side of discipline. This is the instructional side of discipline. It's the stake that helps the tree grow straight. You know, if you are going to plant trees, which I joke a lot of times, we live in Powhatan. Why would anyone ever want to plant a tree? We got plenty of them around. But if you wanted to plant a tree in your yard, maybe it's a fruit tree or something, and you want it to, to begin to grow and to be straight and develop the way it should, you're probably going to come alongside that little sapling and stake it in the ground, tie it to that stake so that it's not tossed to and fro by the wind or the lawnmower or whatever may come against it. And so that's what formative discipline is. It's like braces on teeth. It's like an extra set of wheels on the bicycle. As a disciple, we are disciplined in this way through books that we read, through the sermons that we listen to, the worship services that we attend, and the classes that we are a part of. And so every truth that you're taught in some form or fashion is part of formative discipline. This morning, setting in here under the teaching of the, of the Word of God is part of formative discipline. But there's a second aspect to discipline, and that's what we would call corrective discipline. This type of discipline seeks to correct sin in a disciple through negative reinforcement. It's confronting sin by pointing it out in a believer's life. Of course, this typical and first reaction uh, people have to this type of discipline is to say, who are you to do this? Didn't Jesus, and they'll quote this verse, Matthew 7, 1, maybe the only verse I know in the whole Bible, but then they'll say, Jesus said, Matthew 7, judge not lest you be judged, right? 
And so you'll take that and you're like, well, I don't know what to do with that verse because Jesus says I shouldn't judge. And, and so that kind of is the way of escape for them because they think that's the rationale that no one has the authority to speak in their lives. And yet if you look at the Gospel of Matthew, you see that obviously Jesus says that in Matthew 7, 1, but you skip forward a few chapters to Matthew 18 and Jesus is basically telling us the exact opposite. So there he's saying, that if a brother's wronged you, you go to him, confront him about the issue, and if there's no repentance, take someone else with you. If there's no repentance, ultimately, you bring him before the church, and if there's still no repentance, you excommunicate him. So, how in the world could Jesus say, judge not, and yet he also says, judge? Well, I told you back in November when I shared some of this in our members meeting that in chapter 7, Jesus there is warning against hypocritical behavior, that type of behavior that the Pharisees demonstrated. See, the Pharisees saw everyone else's sin but refused to acknowledge their own sin. Luke 18 would be a good picture of this. Back in Matthew 18... Jesus has given instruction on how to rebuke a brother living in sin for the purpose of winning him back to the faith. And so in Matthew 18, it appears that Jesus has two main concerns. Well, we know that he says we need to speak into someone's life. We need to bring rebuke. But in that, he's concerned that the sinner repents of sin. And secondly, he's concerned that the people involved remain as small as possible. In other words, when a brother or sister gets involved in uh, uncharacteristic sin in, a, in his life or her life, we don't take a billboard out on I-95 and shame that individual into repentance. Anybody want that? No. It's not even loving. Jesus doesn't do that to us. Instead, we go to them individually. We go to them in a group. We go to them ultimately as a church and we plead and we make the case for their return to the Lord and to repentance. But when they continue to refuse, we do have to ramp it up. And that will ultimately get to, as Jesus lays out there in Matthew 18, excommunication. And so that's a, that's a terrible word, right? It's a terrible idea of kicking someone out of the church or removing their membership from them. And so we may have some misconceived ideas of what that is. You see, as a church, when we excommunicate a member, it is simply removing that person from membership and the Lord's table. Removing them from membership and the ability to participate in the Lord's Supper. Why would we do that? It's because the Lord's Supper is reserved for those who are repentant and genuine followers of Jesus. If a person is walking in uh, just characterized unrepentance, they give no evidence of faith. Therefore, they should not be given the privilege of taking the Lord's Supper. So, we are not like Roman Catholics in our excommunication. Protestant churches are not saying what Catholics are saying. The Catholic Church would say that in excommunication, you're taking from the membership and you're t in the church and you're taking from membership in heaven. In other words, it deals with salvation. Now, I don't know about you, but I don't have Holy Spirit eyes to look in everybody's soul and say, yep, believer, no, not a believer. I can't do that. We're fruit inspectors. We're looking at what people are giving evidence to, but ultimately, I don't know if the person is genuinely saved or not saved. I can just look at the effects of their life. So we as a church would never say the person being excommunicated is not a believer. The church is simply saying they're giving no evidence of a being a believer. Therefore, we're going to treat them as a unbeliever, as a pagan, according to what we see in Scripture, Matthew 18, 1 Corinthians 5, which we'll get to in just a moment. So the sinful person is encouraged to attend 
and participate in services and meetings, but he or she is not afforded the rights and privileges of membership or the Lord's table. The goal in all of this is to help the person feel the weight of the sin and be drawn back to Christ. So the church discipline that's laid out there in Matthew 18 by the Lord is often a long and drawn out process. I, I can't tell you how many times I've had people make statements where they think that when a person does something that the church should immediately act against it. Now we're going to see in 1 Corinthians 5 that might be the case in certain situations, but all, all, most of the time I should say it needs to be long, methodical, prayerful, humble, loving, and tenderly gone about through the various stages. And the goal is to simply to win them back. So Matthew 18 would give us this idea of a long drawn out process, but the instruction given by Paul to the church at Corinth, that's different. There he told the church to immediately dis this, dismiss this man among them who was engaged in sin. And so when you read this, I believe that what we see in both passages are two types of people. You've got one, you've got the type of person who's going to repent of sin, and you've got the type of person who's not going to repent. The decision to move toward excommunication is always a about examining the dynamic between the person's sin and the person's repentance, right? Is there repentance in response to the sin, whatever the sin may be in the person's life? So as we read here in just a moment, we're going to read in 1 Corinthians 5 about a man who's engaged in heinous sin. Paul's going to say that it's sin of the character that not even the pagans would do. So it's pretty bad right off the bat. So, I don't want you to see in this that Paul is saying because of this type of sin, we move quickly, but because it's a lesser quote-unquote sin, maybe in Matthew 18, we move slower. It's always in, re in response to the level of repentance. I think what is happening in 1 Corinthians 5 is Paul's kind of speaking to an issue uh, here that would be the culmination of, of what Matthew 18 has been working to and this man has been unrepentant plus you have a church that is embracing this man's sin and celebrating it as well. So let's look at this 1 Corinthians chapter 5. It's already 948. We're going to read this. I've got five short things to say. That was really all setting this up. Let's read this text. Guys, I'm not going to say you don't listen fast enough, but you don't listen fast enough. It's actually, verse 1, reported that there is sexual immorality among you, and of a kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in body, I am present in spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the, in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of our Lord Jesus, you are, to, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh, so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven that you may be, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world, or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, since then you would need to go out of the world. 
But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or is an idolater, a reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not to even eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. Here in these verses, Paul calls, as I said earlier, for the quick removal of this man who is in an immoral relationship. That's a nice way to say what he's doing here. Uh, He's in an immoral relationship with, I guess, you could describe his stepmom. I mean, just heinous, evil, godless type of behavior. This man is characteristically unrepentant. All signs in the man's life indicate that he will not inherit the kingdom of God. You say, how do you know that? That's not becoming of a follower of Jesus, right? That's not what Christ followers do. That's not how we live. We seek to be moral. We seek to be holy. We seek to be righteous. Does it mean we're always those things? Absolutely not. But this is characteristic of his life. Therefore, it's characteristic of his lostness. And so the church then, what Paul's saying, the church's responsibility is to cast him out so that his soul might be warned and saved. Paul obviously had concluded that the man's lifestyle and the refusal to repent, that he was not a believer. In fact, he even calls him evil in verse 13. I mean, these are strong words that Paul is using. And then if we take what he says here in chapter 5 that we just read, we couple it with the other types of sins that Paul mentions in chapter 6, these sins that were present in the church there in Corinth, and we see that these are serious, serious issues that Paul's pointing out in this church. These are things that should not be characteristic of Christians. They're things that believers should judge in one another Things that believers should call for repentance. So how do we do this? Well, let me give you four things uh, real quick. I mentioned these last month in our members meetings. We kind of talked through some of this. But how do we apply discipline? Four things. First of all, it's not exercise to get back at a person. Church discipline, not even the excommunication, but you going to a brother, you going to a sister, you going to someone else in the church, just one-on-one or two-to-one, that's never to be vindictive. That's never in response to a person's sins in a way that you want to get back at them. It's never that. In fact, the second thing is not penal in nature. Us going and and, and disciplining one another is never penal. No, it's the third thing. It's redemptive in nature. See, the goal in discipline is always win the brother back. Even in this passage in chapter 5, that's Paul's concern. He wants to help this man see his sin, and if he is truly regenerate, born again in Christ, he's going to be drawn to the faith. Right? So it's not to get back, it's not penals, but it is redemptive. And then lastly, it should be exercised with humility and love. We never come to this sort of thing haphazardly, flippantly, arrogantly. No, we come with humility and we come with love. And we exercise it on behalf of our brothers and sisters. We receive it when it's us who have strayed from the faith and of walking in sin. 
And so with that understanding about church discipline in mind, I want us to look at five purposes, and these will be super quick, that we find here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I want you to keep in mind that church discipline first involves formative discipline, right? As we sit under the teaching of God's Word, the Spirit of God is using the Word of God to bring out and to reveal sin in our lives, areas of our lives that need growth, and lead us to place, places of faith and repentance. And then the second side of that is corrective. It also begins at a lower level. It's not that we, again, the billboard on I-95 illustration, we don't take a brother's sin and just pledge or blanket it out there in the community to shame them. No, we deal with it incrementally as needed. So five purposes that we see here in this chapter in regards to church discipline. Number one, it exposes sin. Discipline exposes sin. Here the man in Corinth was lost in his sin, thanking God, thinking that God approved of his affair. That's what we kind of see here, the picture that we're getting. He says in verse 1, it's actually reported that there's this sort of immorality among you of a kind that's not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife, and you are arrogant. Ought you not rather to mourn? See, the church had never checked this man's lifestyle, so apparently this man thought that the way he was living was okay. The church instead celebrated this relationship. They, They tolerated it. They thought they were being loving toward this man because of his alternative lifestyle. How loving is it to treat someone who's in a dangerous lifestyle like it's okay? How many of you would allow your kids and grandchildren to kind of just crawl across Highway 60 out here at Red Lane Intersection? None of us would do that. That would be the most foolish thing we could do. It's dangerous. And yet we will allow our brothers and sisters to walk in unrepentant sin and never speak to them. In fact, we think that we're being loving toward them by not, quote unquote, judging them. But if you read what Paul says here, he says he's already made the judgment. We're to judge one another's in the church. Not judging the outside, but judging one another in here. So covering up a person's sin and affirming sinful behaviors, that is the most unloving thing that we could ever do. By doing so, we are encouraging hypocrisy to be further hardened in a person's life. That a person would be further confirmed in their sinful behavior, further lulled into their sinful lifestyle. And so discipline exposes sin. Number two, it warns of judgment. The discipline the church here was instructed to do uh, brought out or or would bring out the sinful man. Let me say that again. The discipline the church was instructed to bring on the sinful man was not God's retribution. Here's what it is. It's a picture of the judgment that would ultimately come. So this man, Paul saying, dismiss him, excommunicate him from the church. Why? Because we want him to feel the weight. We want him to be, to, to be convicted of his sin and hopefully if he's regenerate, be drawn back to the faith. So it's a picture of here's what's going to happen to sinners who don't walk in repentance to the Lord, who are not in relationship with the Lord. They will face the fiery hell, the, fire, the fires of hell. They will face the fiery judgment of God. So you want to give a picture of that, a microcosm of that, if you will, in this discipline of the church. But again, it's not penal in nature. It's redemptive. That leads us to a third purpose. It aims to save. Look at verse 5. We see the second and third point in this verse. 
You are to deliver the man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. That's this warning of judgment. But then the second part of that verse says that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. See, discipline is not penal, it's redemptive. It aims to save a person. It's carried out so that his spirit may be saved. We are to pursue discipline when we see our brothers and sisters, when we see our members taking the path that leads to death. We excommunicate members when all of our pleading, when all of our arm waving, when all of the signs that we could ever wave before them have not been enough to deter them from the path that they are on, the path of destruction, and ultimately we are brought to the only conclusion we have. You are no longer of us because your life bears no witness, no testimony of being regenerate and having saving faith. And so that's the last thing that we have to plead with the individual to repent and return to Christ. Number four, church discipline protects others. Verse six, a little leaven leavens the whole lump, Paul says. One of the reasons I believe Paul's, obviously the sin is heinous and the church is embracing it, but when Paul looks at this situation, he understands that it's not just the man who's at stake here, it's other people in the church, namely lesser mature Christians who would look at this guy who maybe they thought, man, he's, he's got it going together, he's got it going on, he, he's got it together in his life, he's walking with the Lord. I, can't, I don't really understand this side of his lifestyle, but everything else is checking out. The church is affirming his life. And so they're thinking, that's okay for me. I can go and, and have immoral relationships. I can go do things that are contrary to God's word. And so when Paul looks at this, he says, you've got to discipline, you've got to bring discipline so that others are not drawn into the sin and bring judgment upon themselves and further judgment upon the church, harming the name of Christ. And that brings us to our fifth purpose. It preserves our gospel witness. Surprisingly, unbelievers expect Christians to be holy, but Christians don't always hold themselves to the same standard. Have you ever experienced that? Right? I mean, we are accused of being hypocrites all the time. Are you a hypocrite? Because I know I am. Let's just go ahead and acknowledge that this morning, that we don't always live up to the standard of holiness. If we did, we would be not in the, on the earth. We would not be living in this flesh. We would already be glorified with the Lord in heaven, and things would be wonderful. But we still live here in this sinful world. We still live here in this body of flesh. And Paul says in Romans 7 that, that he has this contention within him. He finds the things he doesn't want to do, the things that are sinful, he finds himself doing. And yet at the same time, the things that he wants to do, he not doing. So there's this battle back and forth between the flesh and the spirit in his life. So we know we're not perfect. We know we're not holy. We know we're not right. But at the same time, I think we as Christians use this idea of, well, I'm not perfect to give an excuse for how we're not perfect. I don't know if that made any sense at all. It made great sense in my head. If you guys could just jump in my head sometimes, you, you would understand everything I'm saying. The believers here in the church at Corinth, as we read this, we see that they accepted and celebrated this sinful lifestyle that was repugnant even among pagans. That's what Paul's pointing out in verse 1. It's not tolerated even among pagans. And so, I guess what Paul's saying here is, is this man is living in such a life that the people in your community are looking at that and saying, how is that godly? 
How is that Christ-like? We've heard of this Jesus. We've heard of believers. We've heard of their lifestyle. We, we might have even sat under the preaching of other godly people when we've heard this message and what we're seeing is not characteristic of anything we've ever heard about what it means to follow Christ. And so Paul's warning here is that if you don't do something with this man and his sinful lifestyle, you are destroying your gospel witness. And for us as a church today, are we not an evangelistic people? Yes. So it makes a difference how we live. Our actions validate our proclamation. You can say all you want about the gospel, but if you don't live the gospel, no one will ever believe the gospel that you're preaching. I would argue that you'll stop preaching the gospel because you're not living the gospel. It's making no difference in your life, so why fool with it? So instead of looking and being different, the church here was very much like the sinners around them. They were no longer being the salt and light that God's called us to be. And so when you think about it, we know that people notice when our lives are different, especially when there's a whole community of people whose lives are different. I'm not talking about being strange, but when people see us as the people, Red Lane Baptist Church in Powhatan and this greater Richmond area, they ought to see something of distinctness. They ought to sense something of flavor that is an alternative to the things that they're getting in this world. Not weird, hokey, kooky stuff, not cultish type things, but a people that loves one another, a people that loves the, the Lord, a people that loves the Word of God, and a people that is living according to that Word, and it's making a difference. Not that we just come in here and we sit under the preaching of the Word week in and week out, and then we go live like hell Monday through Saturday, and then come back in here. That's what we're talking about. We're talking about living distinctively, allowing the Word of God to change us. And how does that often happen? Formative, yes, is what we're doing right now. But I need more than formative in my life. How about you? I need a brother who would be willing to stand across from me and say, the way you spoke to your wife's not good. The, the way you're dealing with your children doesn't really, I mean, how, how can we help? Let's talk about this, right? I need that check in my life. You need that check in your life as well. Because what's at stake? Eternity's at stake. Because I have a tendency to say things that are not right. I walked into the gym Monday morning. Confession time, right? I've already told some people this week, so it's confession time. Told our staff Tuesday. But I walked into the gym Monday morning and learned some news that I still don't know if it's true or not, that they were requiring a, a greater level of... of um, protection and stuff and and I was not ready for that on a Monday morning and I, this whole thing is I'm, I've had an, how about you have you had enough of all this I'm just ready for 2020 to, to to be baptized and we moved into something else so like a fool I opened my mouth in response to what I was being told and probably destroyed what little testimony I might have had with this guy that I don't really know who's telling me this so I don't know about you but I make mistakes I need somebody that can check me in that from time to time because my gospel witness is at stake. Christians, we are the salt of the earth. We're the light set on the hill. I've told you before that I believe, and I may be wrong, but I think this is the highest elevation in our county. So literally, Red Lane is a light on the hill of our county. What kind of brightness, what kind of light are we being? We are here as the Lord's instruments. We're to bring flavor and light to a world that needs to experience the contrast 
as we live out the gospel before others, we need to know that we are not a finished product, right? We're still undergoing our own transformation. You're not perfect, I'm not perfect. We're still waging war against this flesh, as I mentioned earlier, and the temptations that come from this world. There remains much room for growth and development in our lives. We have not arrived. And so discipline, think about what discipline is. It is a grace of God to help us to move from where we are to where God wants us to be. Proverbs 3.12, for the Lord reproves him whom he loves, as the father, the son, in whom he delights. Many people, maybe even, even you this morning, would read that verse and say, well, that's not you, that's the Lord. He's going to reprove me. He's going to rebuke me. Who does he do, do that through most of the time in the scriptures? David sleeps with a woman. She becomes pregnant tries to cover it up, murders her husband, takes her into his uh, home, begins to raise this child as his own, because it is, but he's, it's, an Ill, it, it's a bad situation. And yet the whole time, no one other than Nathan the prophet comes to speak to him. But what we, here's what I want you to see in that, that story, is the Lord never comes that we know of and talks to David about it. He sends Nathan the prophet. See, God is most of the time going to reprove you and correct you in your walk with Christ, not through the Holy Spirit himself. He's going to do it through his word. Yes, I'm not saying he's not going to do that. But most of the time, if not all the time, corrective discipline comes when one brother goes to another brother, when one sister goes to another sister. But here's what happens in 21st century American Christian churches. We reject that. Who are you to speak to me? Who gives you that authority? Jesus does. It's on us to receive it. Here's one of the signs of maturity in our lives. Accepting and welcoming and embracing discipline. Immaturity rejects it. Immaturity runs from it. Immaturity gets angry when sin is exposed. Immaturity makes excuses. Immaturity will do everything it can to get out from under any sort of correction. Maturity will hear. Maturity will receive. Maturity will endure the rebuke and the correction from a brother or sister because the mature person understands it's coming from a place of love and soundness. As the church of Jesus Christ, we are a disciplined people. We have committed to be to hold one another's discipleship close to us. We've covenanted together to not allow each other to stray or to fall into sin. We are a committed people. That's a great Christmas message, ain't it? Here's the beauty in all this. I'm going to wrap it up. The only way we can be a disciplined people is because of Jesus, right? We've sang about him this morning. You're as sorry as anyone else in this world until Jesus met you, just like I was. Dead in trespasses and sins. But the beauty of the Christmas, Christmas message is that God so loved the world that he gave his only son, right? He took you out of your sorriness and he brought you into relationship with himself and now you're not all that you will be, you're not all that you can be, but he's lovingly massaging you and growing you and developing you and cultivating you and, and helping you to, to walk in this new faith that you have so that you can be all that Jesus wants you to be for his glory. Christmas story helps us because we understand that it's all about the beginning, it's all about the end, and everywhere in between, and that's where discipline comes in. So, will you and are you receiving that in your life? We must if we want to grow. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for the gift of your son. Lord, we know that the baby that was there in the manger 
is the one who was in Genesis 1 who spoke it all into existence. That blows me away. That the God who spoke creation into existence is the God who laid in the manger manger and who couldn't speak for months. And yet you're the sinless son of God who lived a perfect life, died on a cross as a perfect sacrifice, blood shed for our atonement so that we can be brought into relationship with you and now in that relationship walk close and clean. God, for many of us this morning, that is our testimony. That we are in relationship with Jesus. There was a moment in our life, for me, 18-year-old freshman in college, where I understood my sinfulness, I understood the judgment as I was under, I understood the gospel and, the, and how it could save me and bring me into relationship with the God who created me for himself. And I received that. For the 20 plus years, it's been a gradual process of sanctification. Along the ways, there has been men and churches who've helped me and many times helped me by speaking sternly into my life. God, we know this morning there may be some sitting here watching us online that that's not their testimony. That today, the greatest need in their life is to be, to become a Christian acknowledge their sin and trust you as Lord and Savior. God, I pray this morning as we have a time of response that you will, through your Holy Spirit, draw them to that decision. Lord, for us as believers though, I pray that we would desire spiritual growth. God, we would in that receive the gentle rebuke from our brothers and sisters. God, that we would be willing to gently rebuke our brothers and sisters when needed. Pray that you'd create a culture here in our church that's healthy, that would foster that. God, we know that comes through relationships. Pray you'd help us to develop relationships. God, if there's folks in our church, maybe some who've just been starting to attend or whatever, uh, seat them here. Give them friendships so that they'd have someone to speak into their life. We move to this time of response. We just want to ask that you would draw us to yourself. Lead us to the decisions that need to be made. And help us to walk in holiness this week. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and sing. Let's respond to the Lord.